It's a terrifying thought, but imagine for a moment you are back in high school and you have been called to uh, talk to the guidance counselor, right? They've just given you one of these tests where somehow you fill in a bunch of bubbles and they tell you what you're supposed to be for the rest of your life, right? And so you go in and you're going to talk to the guidance counselor about what's going on and where you want to go and what you want to do for college, all that kind of stuff. And as you sit down, she says something along the lines of, so do you have plans with what you want to do with the rest of your life? And immediately, most high school kids go, I'm not sure if I want a burger or pizza for lunch. And you want me to decide what I'm going to do with the rest of my life? There's always a great irony to me. I know some people are, are probably called to this kind of work for their life, but I think there's a lot of guidance counselors that didn't want to be guidance counselors when they were in high school. So there's kind of an irony in that as well, right? And here they are trying to ask you to map out the whole thing, to set out your plan. And this is something that culturally we ask people to do a lot. There's this idea that like we should get our heads together and we should just have a perfect plan of a way to go forward, you know? Like we have the blueprints in front of us, we have it all mapped out, and we are going to go out and we're going to attack life and we're going to do it just this way. And nothing is going to go wrong and we are going to perfectly plan every moment. You're going to get into the right college and get the right degree so you can get in the right career, get hired by the right people, and be whatever by 50, right? This is why so many of us, by the time we hit 40, are starting to go, ooh, right? Because we start to realize that that plan is not exactly what we thought it was going to be. And the reason for that is because life is far too volatile. If we're honest, we all know that there are phone calls that make our lives different, right? There are those opportunities where you will get a call that will change everything. There are calls... Um, Maybe about a fire or a pregnancy or a death or a layoff. We could go through the list, right? All of these things that take that plan and just totally ditch it. And if you get one of those calls, all that planning is for naught because life is different now after that call. And so this is, I think, something that's really hard for us. What do we do? Because we understand both of these realities. We don't want to be caught unaware. We want to be good planners, but we also know that that call could come at any moment. So which one of these places do we live in, right? How many plans do we make and how much do we just kind of wait for life to happen? How do we balance that kind of drive in our culture to figure everything out with the reality of the fact that you cannot figure everything out because life changes? And throughout this sermon series we've been going through, we've been looking at the book of James, a book that is written, we believe, by a brother of Jesus, and he talks about practical ways to go about life. And he has a little section here about how to look at your future, which I think can be really helpful for us. Uh, so we're going to start reading in James chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, Spend a year there, carry on business, and spend money. Why, why do you not even know that what, why you don't even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. James starts to talk about the plans we make, and he says, you are like a mist that disappears. Uh, do you ever, you know these mornings sometimes we get where they're really foggy? 
and you feel like you're in a Sherlock Holmes story all of a sudden, right? You just wake up and there's just this ominous fog all over the place. And we always, I know I always do this. I go, oh, it's going to be foggy today. And then I go in, I get a cup of coffee or something. And 10 minutes later, you come out and it's clear, right? Like the sun comes up and it just burns that fog off. James says, that's what a human life is like. About the time you think you understand it, the sun comes out and burns it off. And it's over. So don't get too excited about your plans. Don't get excited about where you're going and what you're going to do. Look and notice that this is connected deeply to everything that James has said so far in this book about wealth. Right? We've talked a lot about wealth in this book. And James has talked about not pursuing wealth and not being jealous and not being envious and not getting too far ahead of yourself and how the wealthy are the ones that are treating you poorly in your churches. And he's kind of had this anti-wealth bent. But again, this is, um, this is true here. Think about the people who make plans, right? You can think about a wealthy executive sitting at the top of his tower, and he's got all the people downstairs at the switchboard and all the secretarial staff that are planning his schedule and planning his calls and planning his meetings, right? Very busy person. Um, we probably don't know many of these people, but we've heard of these people who their schedule is just always busy. If you want to meet them, you're lucky to get 10 minutes, right? And so with a certain amount of wealth and power comes a busyness of schedule. On the flip side, generally speaking, we think of those who are in the greatest poverty. They are people that probably don't have as deep of schedules, right? We probably are not going to, it would be almost foolish to walk up to someone who is homeless and say, what's your five-year plan? They would probably tell us, hey, pal, my plan is to get dinner tonight. Get out of here, right? And I think James is playing on this dynamic. He says, there are those of you who are sitting around with your wealth and your affluence and your ability, and you're saying, I'm going to plan out my life. I am going to make sure everything is on the straight and narrow. And he goes, you should stop doing that. Those people with less resources and less schedule are actually a little bit ahead of you. It begs the question for us, why is our culture so focused on our future? Is it possible that compared to other places in the world, we have so much ability and so much affluence that we can think about the future in other ways that other people don't? And in the midst of this, James says, take your time. He says, you know, in the end, this is really about where your trust is. He says, you know, you make all these plans about I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and I'm going to do this. But what about God? And I think what he is trying to get at is that there's a certain self-sufficiency in I made this plan. I'm going to go to this place next week and I'm going to do this amount of business and I'm going to live a year this place. And he says a lot of that is about you taking control of your own life. And God wants to ask, do I have anything to say in this? Are you doing this on your own or do you need me for this? It's really interesting as we read James because James echoes Jesus so strongly. It makes me wonder if some of the things that were taught here um, are things that Joseph and Mary talked about in the house. You know, like I, I, I feel like Mary would read some of the writings about Jesus and from James and would go, wait a minute, that's my stuff. You stole my stuff, right? Because we see the two of them echoing each other. And this idea of not getting ahead of yourself is something that Jesus talks about frequently. Uh, James, uh, Matthew 6, 11, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the Lord's Prayer says, Give us today our daily bread. 
Not, please fill up my 401k so I'm okay long term. Give us today our daily bread. Give me enough food to get through tonight. Uh, later on, do not store up your for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they are? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown in the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Uh, this is a really interesting phrase. You know, we've turned this into songs, right? Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And it's really interesting because what we've made that to mean is first think about churchy stuff and God will take care of everything else. And I mean, that's roughly okay. But notice here, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. Uh, remember, kingdom is a verb more than a noun. One day our Bible translations will start getting this right. And you won't have to hear me make this mini-sermon every three weeks. But kingdom is a verb. The reign of God. The rule of God. Jesus says that if you worry about God being in control, then the stuff that you want to be in control of is going to be taken care of. You've got to let go of the control of it. You've got to stop gripping the reins of your life. So often this is what we do. We just want to control it, and we just want to put it in our power and in our control, and we want to know how to answer our questions, how to answer our worries. And so we grip it tighter and tighter. And James says, your life is just a mist. You can't control it. Jesus says, you're like, you're like lilies, right? Lilies are gorgeous. They're dressed well. And, God, and they don't sit there and worry about it. Today has got enough trouble. You've got enough on your plate between now and when you go to bed. Just forget about it after that, right? Now, let me try to make this really practical. Um, how do you this morning feel about your retirement fund? I don't know how you feel, though I'm seeing a lot of grimaces. Um, but my guess is that for most of us, whether we feel good or bad, the reason we feel good or bad is based on how big it is right now and our plans for putting more into it, right? Have I done enough to save for my retirement? Uh, how do you feel about uh, your mortgage? I don't know if it's good or bad, but my guess is for most of us, or your rent, you know, whatever situation you're in, for most of us, it's probably based on 
Am I f- feeling firm in my job? Do I think I will continue to be employed, et cetera, et cetera? We go on and on. Uh, how safe do you feel in your house? And is that safety based on anything other than I put my family in a good neighborhood, we have a good security system, right? All these kinds of things that we talk about. How do we feel about our church? All right, we will, I've been focusing on you. Let's focus on me for a second. Is my feelings about this church based on anything other than attendance and giving, right? Money in a plate and butts in a seat is generally the way that preachers feel good about their church. How do we feel about that? Do we, when someone goes, hey, how's the church going? Do you go, well, we were over budget last month, right? This is the thing we do. And what most of us never ask in any of this is when you think about those things, your retirement, your mortgage, your safety, your church, whatever, your kids, does anybody ever say, you know what, I'm, I have faith that God's going to take care of us? Now, I know what some of you are doing immediately. That sounds like naive, pippy, long-stocking baloney to some of you, Right? To say, hey, how is our budget doing? Well, the Lord will take care of us. Yeah, that and a quarter will not buy you a phone call because we don't have phone booths anymore, right? <laughs> I mean, that's, that, that's a gut feeling we have. And the reality is what we are saying is next year I will go to this place and I will do this thing and I will spend this money. And James is saying, you know what? You're one phone call away from that being garbage. Your life is a mist. You are fooling yourself if you think you have that much control. Now, we have to make some caveats, okay? It is easy to hear this and think, oh, we should never save for retirement. We should be good spiritual people that never do any foreplanning and then are constantly lost and in chaos. This is not what I'm saying, okay? Uh, If nothing else, um, Jesus does have a lot of thoughts on saving and money, and it's kind of weird because it feels like he's very anti-savings. But also, God expects us to be good interpreters of Scripture. And we live in a world where family structures are very different. You don't live with your kids the way you used to. We aren't living on subsistence farming. Um, We live in a world where banks and money and interest have become the primary way of doing economics instead of real estate. Okay, I have a lot of reasons why we can still save for retirement. Okay, do not hear me wrong. Uh, Just, you know, the existence of older health, but also of things like cancer and Alzheimer's and things like that. It just changes the way that we should probably interpret some of these verses. In the same way that an Australian should probably not follow Levitical law about when to plant and when to harvest because they will probably die, right? (laughs) There's just, there's factors when we're interpreting the Bible. If that didn't make sense to you, we can talk about later. But anyways, like this is just issues that we have. So I'm not saying we don't do any of that stuff. But I also don't want us to neuter the scripture. And the reality is that's what a lot of us do. James says today, or Jesus says today has enough worry of its own. James says don't make all these plans, rely on God instead. And our version of that is, oh, okay, I'll rely totally on me and forget about God's part of this. Right? And there's a balance there that we have to strike. So how does James balance that? uh, Oh, yeah, because we have this idea I just love this. Okay, this is what we're like with God, right? We're sitting in there with our little like underoo costume like, 
I can stop the world. And God's behind us like, okay, guys, just let them think they've got this under control. It's okay. This is the only good part of Amazing Spider-Man 2, by the way, is this scene. Anyway, James then um, challenges us to think differently. Uh, this is a picture of a guy named Derek Webb. He's one of my favorite musicians. I probably talk about him too often in sermons. Uh, he had this album that came out in, when I was in college, not when he was in college, when I was in college, called I See Things Upside Down. And the whole album was about subverting American cultural values versus Christian values. He got in a little trouble for it. Uh, he gets a little political and people don't like that. That, that is not a way. If you want to sell Christian albums, getting political is not the way to get there, okay? But the beginning of the album haunts me every time I hear it. It's kind of this atmospheric music and the first line out of his mouth. I've got faith in the bank and money in my heart. Just think about that for a minute. I have faith in the bank, and I've got money in my heart. He then goes on, and he uses a line that quotes from the Hebrew Bible. Often the uh, Hebrew Bible talks about God as the owner of cattle on a thousand hills, which is a way in the ancient world to say super rich, okay? And he said, I've convinced myself that a cattle on a thousand hills is not enough to pay my bills. And as I look at this, that is the person that I am, a person with faith in the bank and money in my heart, who thinks that the cattle on a thousand hills can't pay my bills. And James comes to us and says, there's a different way to live. All right, now we get to James. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then who knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. All right, so the way I was always taught this growing up, this whole passage, we were always taught it as a language thing. You just need to learn to say God willing or Lord willing before any plan you make. And you've totally done what the scripture says, right? Um, and some people were really trained. Um, I'm going to brag on her. She doesn't know this. Uh, this was, you guys remember Jesse Calderon? A few of you guys remember Jesse, right? Jesse posted this yesterday. She's getting married in a couple weeks. And I highlighted it for you there. Look what she said. I can't believe that in just 20-something days, if God allows it, I'll be getting married to my favorite person in the world and moving to Guam. They're getting married and moved to Guam. Yay for Jesse. But I just, it struck me because I was thinking about this sermon. Jesse has been trained this verse. If God allows it. Uh, maybe you've seen this in my dad. My dad, this is strong. I'll be like, hey, dad, can you meet us tomorrow for breakfast? And he'll go, yeah, Lord willing, I'll be there. Every time. Every single time, Lord willing. And it's good to do that, but I think that more than just a language thing, it's a heart thing. Do you really believe that you will do something if God wills it? Or do you think that you'll make it happen regardless? Right? This is an old phrase that uh, Southerners will use sometimes. God willing and the creek don't rise, right? Back from a day where you'd live on one side of the creek, and if the creek was up, you wouldn't be able to pass it, and so you'd be done for that day. And this is a phrase that sometimes we use, God willing and the creek don't rise. But ultimately, if we read this passage and we only see a language change, we've missed it. The language change is great, but it's about a heart change as well. And so we have to start to ask ourselves, do we really, do we really trust God to take care of us? 
Do we trust that we can be caught when we come down instead of just fly off on our own wings? A few things that we kind of have to learn to say, that I have to learn to say. This is the house we'll raise our kids in if that's what God wants for us. I want to keep this job as long as God wants me to have it. My career will go wherever God wants it to. My greatest hope as a parent is that this child will be who God wants them to be. These are hard things. This is why Jesus starts the Lord's Prayer, thy, or starts it, he has in it, thy will be done. Right? Not my will done, not what I want, not my control, but what you want. And so this is uh, my challenge for us today. As we go forward, you guys have got a lot of things you want to do in your life. Some of you already have plans about where you're going to eat lunch and are starting to think about them very intently, right? Is it I'm going to go eat here or if the Lord wills, I'm going to eat here, right? If the Lord wills, we will talk about acapella singing at the end, right? Like, in my heart, do I trust that God will lead me where he needs to go? Or do I think that I need to cover my own bases? Because the moment I think that I'm in control of my own life, those are the moments that the phone calls come that change things. And James says, do not be foolish. Do not sit and try to plan and plot your life. Let God take it where he wills. All right. Uh, that is the end of my sermon. And I would love questions. Do you guys have any questions on this passage? Yes. So, um, this is, this, I don't know why, this blew my mind when I was in school and talking about biblical interpretation. I was always taught, you do what the Bible says. Just do it. Don't ask any questions. And somebody said, well, I read this book, and they go, well, one of the biggest problems with that is how Jews are supposed to farm in Australia. I was like, what? Okay, Australia is on the other side of the globe of us, correct? Their seasons are the opposite of ours. So let's say I'm a Jewish person reading the Torah, and it tells me that I'm supposed to, I don't remember these things, but I'm supposed to plant in April and then reap my crop in September. If my interpretive process is, that's what the Bible says and that's what I'm going to do, you will do a great job of planting your crops in the middle of the fall and then trying to reap them at the end of the winter, right? You've got to go, oh, I'm on the other side of the globe. This is one where God's going to allow me to kind of figure out like a cultural difference here, you know? And so, it, and I don't know why, when I was in school, it just blew my mind. I was like, they're right. Australians, Jewish Australians cannot literally interpret the Bible. You know, like this is something that just kind of messed with my mind. But it was a reminder that there is an interpretive context to scripture. And that, you know, we don't go crazy with it. It's not that the Bible doesn't matter. But it means that if things are a little different, we look at it. Another one that I've thought about, Bible talks about be fruitful and multiply. And some people take that as a mandate, you have to have kids. Well, if I live in India and we have 1.2 billion people and we're running out of country to put them, it may be that we have to reconsider what that means and what that value is and if that's something we continue to do, right? Where your context requires you to come back to the scripture again. But the Australian farming is just one that... It just blew my mind because it was so, un, so unarguably correct that an Australian cannot farm the way that somebody in the Northern Hemisphere can. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure there are, but yeah. 
I think it's interesting. I think it's gotten a little easier as the culture has changed. I know so few people that are doing exactly what they thought they would be at 18 or even 22. Like so many of my friends are not using the degrees that they got when they went into college and they're just finding other career options. So I, I think that's a practical thing that helps me a little bit too, to be like, yeah, all of my friends, I mean, I have a degree in youth ministry and I'm adjacent to that, but I don't want to work with teenagers, you know, like it's, um, I don't know. It's helpful for me to remember, to remember that just practically too. Any other questions?